So this is a two-part study. I found that out about 20 minutes ago. So um, I, I planned for this to be one, but I kind of thought it might be two. So it's a two-part study. The title is, you see it, What the Bible Says About Marriage, Sex, and Gender. And it's that last section that we will um, we'll hit upon. And also in that study, we'll be talking about how do we, you know, not just you know, what the Bible says about gender, but how do we respond in those family situations or in those friendship situations? So we're going to talk about that and some wisdom we can glean about how to move forward. But let's just read the verse. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. First three verses is all about love. It says, love the stranger, love the brotherhood, love those brothers and sisters that have found themselves in prison and are being mistreated. As we move into this next portion, I believe the topic of love is still in view here. Um, love will impact marriage. Love is going to impact how we interact with uh, sex and other people. And so this is a matter of love as well. So, Let's begin to unpack this a little bit. And the way I've kind of arranged this is to ask a series of questions and then to dive into the Bible, dive into our text, and then other passages to try and uh, get a clear biblical understanding. So we begin with, what does the Bible say about marriage? Because that's the first word. Marriage is honorable. So, well, what about marriage? Well, marriage is an institution established by God at the very beginning of creation. And Genesis 2, 18 through 24, and I really encourage you to write these verses down because there is so much false narrative out there about what the Bible has to say on these things. And they, many people are going through the scriptures and they're cherry picking uh, verses and then creating a narrative around it. The thing is, these who are trying to find justification for their sexual immorality do cherry pick and they don't read the entire Bible. And so they leave out the parts that are very, very clear. And um, so I would encourage you to write these down. This is not Troy's opinion. This is the word of God. So I'm not going to read all of these verses, but Genesis 2:18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. It goes on. Let's move down to verse um, 21, or at the end of verse 20. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Um, then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought and he brought her to man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A very common line that's used in marriage ceremonies is this line of them becoming one flesh speaks of that marital union. So what does the Bible say about marriage? Well, the first thing on the list is it's established by God. It was his design. And I think this is such an important truth for us to know. Whatever God esteems, whatever God designs, whatever God intends, Satan will seek to destroy it. And there is your commentary 
There is your lens into looking at what is going on in the world today. What does the Bible say? What does esteem, esteem, what does it value? You will see an attack against those things. So what does the Bible say about marriage? Well, that it's his institution, that he designed it. It was designed for good. He did not design it to be an impressive, miserable thing to endure. He saw the state of Adam, and he said, it's not good that you're alone. So he made a woman specifically designed for the, the, the male that he had created and brought not just Adam and Eve, the individuals, but male and female. And he saw the way each of them were created and he brought them together to complete and to make one flesh. This union, what else does it say about marriage? Um, it is designed to be a lifelong union. Marriage is meant to be a, a, an agreement and a partnership, a um, a relationship that is not broken. Matthew 19.9 says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her, who is divorced, commits adultery. As we go through our study this morning, and we talk about adultery, and we talk about divorce, and we talk about premarital sex, and homosexuality, and lesbianism, pornography, listen, people are going to feel the impact of those words because there is those sins represented in this room. So how do we feel about that? We feel like sin needs to be repented of, that you might know the grace of God. And so we will call you to walk in the grace. If you have done that, then we don't need to have a conversation about it unless you're wanting to minister to other people. It's the grace of God. I believe it's there. But we need to define what the Bible says. So in bringing these up, this is not meant to at all be, you know, targeting. It's just let's get a fresh, clear biblical definition. And first of all, marriage is God's idea. Secondly, it's to be a lifelong union. It was never intended to be a disposable relationship. Jesus made this very clear. He goes, Moses gave you divorce because of the hardness of your heart. But that's not the way God wanted it to be from the beginning, is that the two should become one. The Bible does allow for divorce in, the, in very rare circumstances. The most explicit circumstance talked about, I just gave you, is that is in the case of adultery. I'm not going to get into a conversation about this because it is a whole Bible study in and of itself. But... I know that as I speak about this, it could be contemplated in some of your minds. Maybe this has come to you and you didn't want this. Maybe you're contemplating doing this and you do want this. Or maybe you've already been divorced and you have entered into um, adultery with that person and then the marriage broke and you end up becoming married to that person. What do you do when you have a verse like this, Matthew 19.9? you repent. It's like, well, but we're already married. You still need to repent. Now, I'm not saying you need to now divorce that person as well, but their needs. I mean, this is very, this is just a simple truth of scripture. Wherever we sin, lying, cheating, stealing, lusting, you know, you know, losing our temper, whatever it is, we are to repent of that sin. If you have 
committed adultery, broke the relationship, the marriage you're in, and you are now in another one, you and that new spouse need to come, or at least you, to the place of repenting of what you had done before and now walking in a godly marriage now. And if you hear that and say, that's what I'm going to do, I'm going to divorce, I'm going to repent, and then I'll be all right. You're not, you're not understanding the word of God. You are not looking at this the way the Bible teaches it to be taught. And that is manipulating, and that is using um, repentance as a cloak for unrighteousness. I would, be, I would warn you to not do that. So God designed marriage. God designs it to be a lifelong partnership. And God joins men and women together in one flesh inside of marriage. Now, we read that at the end of Genesis 2, verse 24, um, that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But Jesus also talks about this. And he says that, that you know, God has brought together, let not man separate. Matthew 19, 6. Listen to that. What God has brought together. It, when a husband and a wife, or when a male and a female come together in marriage and they become husband and wife and they share in that intimacy, that is something that they do. They have that physical act together. But there's something that God does. And that is he makes them one flesh. He joins them together. And that is something in his design, only happens between a biological male and a biological female. That is the benefit. Now listen, there's, there's all, marriage is broken all around us. But looking at a broken marriage that is not following God's design is no reason to go out and to further damage and disobey God because people aren't doing it the right way. God, this is God's intention. And when a husband and a wife live out marriage as God has called them to, they will experience this oneness that God brings together. Now, people may go out and marrying the person of the same sex, hoping to arrive at this level of uh, unity and oneness, but it will never happen. I, I, now, in saying that, I'm not saying that they might not be, in some cases, more faithful in that, that relationship than even a heterosexual couple. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to argue that. That's not my point. My point is this. What God has designed for a man and a woman to experience when they come together is something that God does, not what man does. The marriage will bring them together, you know, uh, civilly, uh, in a civil union, in a, a religious uh, union. Um, it can bring them together physically, but it's God who makes them one. He's the one that's doing this. Sam uh, Alberry writes, God himself produces this union between them physically, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. Two people are becoming knitted together. God has designed it to work that way. And so when you are in a good, healthy marriage, you are the recipient of God's making you, making you one with that man or that woman. And there's a fullness, and there's a blessing, and there's a joy that is present. It's God's design. It's available to you. 
It's available to every marriage. To every bad marriage, this is available to you. And, uh, and there's, uh, listen, every one of these statements probably could become its own Bible study. But what you need to do is discover the word of God and walk it out. It is also a union that reflects the relationship and work of Christ with the church. This is an interesting one. I'm thinking of Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. And I'll read a couple of verses of this. But the, the, the husband in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, is commanded to love his life the way Christ loves the, the church. And that a woman is supposed to be in submission and yielded to her husband the way the church is in submission to Christ. So we have this typology, we have this picture that is being painted in a godly Christian relationship of God's love for the world and the, the church's submission to the Lord. It's an honor and a privilege to have a Christian marriage, and it's a responsibility to rightly reflect that love and to rightly reflect that submission to Jesus Christ. So when we go outside of God's design for marriage, and when we don't walk in a yieldedness to the word of God and what a husband is to do and what a man is or what a wife is to do, it corrupts that image and that reflection that God intended for you to have to the world around you, beginning with your children. That they get to see this. They get to see the love. They get to see the care. They get to see the respect. And as they see this, it becomes a desirable thing for them, which they're able to then go on and say that marriage is honorable among all, right? This is what the text says. But if what they see is chaos and confusion and fighting and dysfunction and moving outside of the design, they're not going to see that reflection. But when it is seen, it can have a powerful impact upon our children. It is also a union where love is to be shown and submission is to be expressed. We talked about it, but in the light of that being a reflection of our relationship with Jesus and his love for us. But there are those real examples of how the marriage should function. Um, we read um, in Ephesians 5, 24 and 25, that the wife should be um, subject to her husband and that the husband should love his wife. When this happens, this is something that reflects the union of the church in Jesus. And listen, some will say, well, why should she be in subjection? This means she's inferior. Let me ask you this question to address that, that protest. Is Jesus in submission to the Father, yes or no? Is Jesus in submission to the Father, yes or no? He is in submission to the Father. Does that make him inferior to the Father? It doesn't. He is still divine. It's a, it's a statement of function. It's a, a statement of role. It has nothing to do with value. Jesus is in submission. And so this is not some heavy-handed tyrant that's barking out orders like Archie Bunker to Edith. How many remember Archie Bunker? Okay, so most of you don't. But yeah, th that's not it. That's not what we're talking about here. It's a servant-hearted leader and a husband loving, putting the needs of his wife before his own, esteeming her 
And that she then yields to this one that's doing everything he can to love her. Is showing respect. This is how we are to function inside of marriage. If you're not loving your wife, quit waiting for her to respect you. If you're not respecting your husband, well, take him out of sight. No. Um, then, um, you know, don't wait for him to start loving you. The command is to you. You do that. Should he do that? Yes. Should she do that? Yes. And if it's not happening, then get around a godly couple that will lovingly exhort you into that role model and will not afraid to call you to repentance when they would see that. If you don't know where to go, call the church office. The pastors will be happy to sit down with you. Um, very simple. What is uh, God's plan with marriage? Well, it's his plan for how the world would be populated. How humanity would be sustained is through a man and a woman coming together in marriage and in a sexual union and having offspring. Genesis 1.28. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now you may say, well, yeah, but you don't have to be married to have kids. You're right. You don't have to be married to have kids and to uh, populate and to multiply upon this earth. But if we want it to be healthy society, we do. And this is not even, I mean, listen, it, you can debate anything you want. But I encourage you to go look at the data that talks about what a broken home or children who grow up in a home where mom and dad are not present. Look at the stats. Now, again, grace to you. If you are in a situation where that is not the case because somebody broke that marriage bonds, we're sorry. God will give you the grace to, to do that. And I encourage you to lean upon godly brothers and sisters or godly fam you know, family that you may have, biological family, to help you in that process. Okay, you need, This is where we can support one another. Um, but every area, when it comes to matters of finishing school, when it comes to matters of poverty in their life, when it comes to matter of mental health, whether they're going to be in jail or not, whether they're more likely to commit suicide, the, when, they are, when kids are not brought up in a house like that, the stats skyrocket. So yes, you can win the argument that it can happen between two individuals and you don't need a family unit for mankind to go on. That's true. But marriage is a foundational block of society that makes the next generation grow up in the best possible scenario. And when that is removed, it's all over. Don't take my word for it. I'm not going to give you the stats. I have the stats. Go read them yourself. And you can find out. And what we read is that in verse 4, the next point is that marriage is something that should be honored, which it's not today. And more people not getting married. More people, you know, redefining what a marriage is. The Word of God tells us that this is honored by all men. I think we live in a day and an age that is so bizarre that, I mean, here the word of God says it's honored by uh, all men. And I think you go around the world and in most places, uh, marriage is honored. But in Western society, it's not being honored. Which, listen, we are pulling out the foundation stones of society. And it is only a matter of time unless we repent before it collapses upon itself. 
It is to be honored, and it should be honored. Remember, Satan comes to rob, kill, and destroy. Whatever God loves, esteems, and values, Satan is after to destroy. Marriage is God's idea. Family is God's idea. And so he's out to do that. Sex is God's idea, and he's out to corrupt that and to pervert that. Well, in Hebrews 13, 4, it says, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. Or, in other words, don't bring defilement into that sexual relationship between a husband and wife. There should be nobody else in that bedroom. Literally. There should be nobody else in that bedroom emotionally. There should be nobody in that room virtually. It is a union between a husband and a wife. That is the way God has designed it. And when that it, you go outside of that, you are bringing harm and damage. You are defiling, defiling that which God has honored. We've read it already, but it should be clear that adultery is forbidden in Scripture. It's not allowed. Well, what about my happiness? Well, I'm glad to talk to you about your happiness. But I also want to talk to you about your holiness. And you going and breaking God's word. If you're a believer and you think that by going and breaking God's word and committing an adulterous relationship, you're going to be better off, knowing that God's word says that it's wrong, doesn't that create like a crisis of faith for you? That God's word could be wrong? And if it's wrong about that, then what else? But see, God's word is right. Look around and see the damage that comes in those circumstances and in those situations. Going beyond the intimacy of one man and one woman that are in a marriage union is to go beyond what God has allowed. And it will bring defilement. Well, that leads us into the next subject but also talks about, it's linked to this as well, because in verse 4, it says, But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. You know, often when we come to these subjects like this, people say, yeah, but what's the interpretation? There's so many interpretations. You know who says that? People who don't want to look at the Word of God and see what it has to say. This is not a complicated structure. These are very simple words. Right? We can understand what a fornicator is. We can understand what an adulterer is. We understand who God is. And we know what judgment is. We have plenty of evidence in Scripture. So what does the Bible say um, about sex? Well, it states that outside of marriage, that act is going to be judged by God. That's what it says. Outside of that single sex act between a biological male and a biological female in holy matrimony, those other acts will receive judgment. And we have history that tells us that that is the case. We have prophecies that tell us that will be the case. So... When we talk about this word for fornication, it is the Greek word pornos. It's where we get our word pornography from, but it is a much broader word than simple pornography as we understand it today. It is a broad word 
that encompasses, encompasses all sexual immorality. Ralph Harris says premarital sex, sodomy, prostitution, and homosexual acts are all included in the term pornos, and like adultery, they will fall under the judgment of our holy God. That's the word fornication. Uh, adultery is a Greek word, moikos, and it means adultery. But it's that word pornos that encompasses all other sex acts. And these are forbidden, and they will receive judgment. The Bible has a lot to say on these. I want to give you four references for you to read on your own. It's Leviticus 18, 20 through 25, Romans 1, 26 through 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. You can just leave those up there for a moment for people to take a look at it. But it's, here, rape is forbidden. Incest is forbidden. Homosexuality is forbidden. Bestiality is forbidden. All sexual expressions except that of the marital sex act is forbidden. And the Bible calls it exploitation when you engage in an act with another person. That's not your, your partner, your married, your married partner, the person you're married to. It's like, it's so confusing. You guys use so many words to say marriage nowadays. But the biblical definition, if you're not doing it there, the Bible calls it exploitation. You know, we know about the exploitation of children. We know about a woman being exploited, and we speak about those in negative terms. We agree for the most part as a society that a woman should not be sexually exploited, that children should not be sexually exploited. But did you know that? just in case you think this is a target against you know, adultery or you think it's a target message against homosexuality. But did you know that premarital sex is an exploitation of that person? You're exploiting them. 1 Thessalonians 4.6 says that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. This idea of taking advantage is the idea, it can also be the word, is to exploit or outwit, defraud, cheat. This is what's happening. Now you may say, yeah, but we're in love. But love chooses the highest good for another person. And if you believe that the word of God is true and that God is going to judge all sex acts outside of marriage, then you are leading that person and engaging in sex with that person that's going to lead them to judgment. That is not choosing the best for them. That is selfishness. Well, you see, if I don't do this, the relationship is over. Oh, because you love yourself so much and what you benefit from that relationship on your side, you're willing to defy God and to put them in a place where they could actually experience the judgment of God. That is a selfish act. Now, I'm not saying you don't love them at all, but what I'm saying is that is a selfish act. Maybe you've never heard before that it's wrong to engage in sex before marriage if you're in love with a person or you're you know, engaged. No, you're, you should not be engaged in that. And I was told by a pastor that there were some people that were at the church. He ended up getting into a conversation with them. And um, they uh, were welcoming people. Um, 
How can I explain this? I don't want to say too much. Well, I'll just cut to the chase. Another pastor, the father and mother, encouraged their son and future daughter-in-law to live together and to be sexually active for a year to make certain that they're going to be compatible. A pastor said that to his son. And so when this other pastor began to talk with them about this, they're like, yeah, but my dad's a pastor. And he said, so maybe you don't know this. But the Bible forbids premarital sex. It is only reserved in marriage for that biological male and that biological female. And so this goes out into matters of homosexuality. And it goes out into matters of lesbianism. Um, and we'll talk about the transgender thing later. But let's talk a little bit. We hear so much about homosexuality and how it's okay and it's good. And if you're, you know, people are born that way. There is not a shred of evidence that somebody is born that way. That they may have corrupt inclinations like all of us have corrupt inclinations. Well, I don't have corrupt inclinations. Do you ever want to lie, cheat, steal? Have you ever wanted to go and buy the thing you shouldn't have? Have you ever coveted before? Okay, then you have corrupt inclinations. We all have corrupt inclinations. We're, part, we're living in a fallen world. Those corrupt inclinations are things we are to crucify, to deny, not indulge. This is what the Bible, this is what Jesus says. But God is going to judge these things. And we're hearing that people are this way. And you, what can they do about it? They were born that way. No, they do about that the same thing that somebody wants to do when they want to murder somebody. They don't do it. Just because you're angry and you want to steal to get even or you want to harm them physically, you don't do that. You deny those urges in the same way it is true for premarital sex, for adultery, for lesbianism, for homosexuality, for any other sex act. The Bible said, we just read here, that God is going to judge these things. And we, again, we have history to show that this is exactly what took place. There's an ancient city called Sodom and Gomorrah that experienced the wrath and the judgment of God for their sin. Now, some are quick to chime in and say, yes, but the sin was not homosexuality. The sin, as it states in Scripture, was oppression and a lack of hospitality. And they are right. The Bible does say that about Sodom. They were inhospitable, and they were a, a place where they were showing oppression. And you can find that statement numerous times in the Old Testament. And so... Those who are out to prove a mission will look at that and say, see, God, Sodom was not judged because of uh, their homosexuality. But they don't read the whole Bible. They just read enough to try and make their point. Because if you read the whole counsel of God's word, you cannot come to that conclusion. This is what it says. Verse 7 in the book of Jude. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the 
vengeance of eternal fire. The word of God says that Sodom is an example for us to know that he judges sexual sin. Yes, oppression is wrong and inhospi uh, being inhospitable is wrong too, but this is a very clear statement. We have history. Yeah, but you can't even find the city of Sodom. Well, maybe we will one day, but if we don't, I don't have a problem with it because it was destroyed. So that is not an issue. Some say that they have found the city of Sodom, and if they have the right place, well, there's an ash layer, and it shows all kinds of destruction. But if we haven't found it, you know, this is not an archaeological certainty. It's okay because God destroyed it. But we have the word of God that tells us this, that in the past God has judged sin, which gives us an indication of what he will do in the future. The Bible is clear that sin will be judged, including sexual sin and other sins as well. Um, let me read. Let me turn, to first, turn with me over to 1 Corinthians. I didn't give the entire reference down here. 1 Corinthians 6. And we'll begin at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves. So it doesn't just stop with sexual sin nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, past tense, some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The early church was full of people that were coming out of all kinds of sin, just like the church is full of people today. It's like, well, I, you know, I was a homosexual and I've repented and I've given my life to the Lord. Welcome. You're welcome. You know, well, I'm a, I'm a lesbian and I, I just know that I want to get more understanding about the word of God. So we're here. You're welcome to hear what the word of God has to say. You're not welcome to promote it, but you're welcome to hear what the word of God has to say. You know, well, I was a liar. Well, Welcome. If you repented of that, you're welcome, just as anybody is. So this is not targeting one sin, which is what those in the homosexual community and the LGBTQ want us to think is that fundamental Bible-believing Christians are just out to attack them. You brought the question to our doorstep. You've made this a political issue. You've made this a family issue. You've made this an education issue. You've made this an issue in our churches. And now that we open our mouth and speak the truth in love, you want to turn on, on us and say that we're the ones that have made it an issue. You've made it an issue. And this is what the word of God has to say. We don't hate you. We're praying for you to come and to repent of sin just like we have. There is people that have come out of every type of sin inside these four walls right now that are changed and are washed and are clean, to which we say, praise the Lord. Welcome. We're all in that place. You're all welcome. But that we're going to become silent about what the word of God has to say 
and not warn and not teach what the word of God has to say is absolutely not going to happen here. We're obligated to speak the truth. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There's the judgment that is to come. Those who live in lifestyles of sin, unrepenting, will experience the wrath of God for all of eternity. This is important for us to know. Next question is, well, shouldn't God just uh, let us live how we want to live? Just can't he just let us do what we want to do? Why does he care? We're just animals. You're not just an animal. And I'll give you proof that we really don't want to just live how we want to live sexually. People will say that. We should be left alone to make our own decisions. What decisions happen in a bedroom ought to be left alone. Oh, really? In 2017, actress Alyssa Milano tweeted, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write, quotes, me too, as a reply to this tweet. Well, by noon, over 200,000 people tweeted, Hashtag me too. Within a year, it had been used 19 million times or 55,000 times a day, which is to say this. People know you can't just go and do whatever you want to do sexually. There are boundaries. There are lines you don't cross. And this hashtag me movement was a proof that we know that there are lines that you do not cross. And just because you have a desire doesn't mean you can do that. So we understand that there are standards and exploitation and abuse is wrong. So to, to bring up this idea that, well, can't we just live how we want to? We don't want to live like that. Let me read you a quote from Sam Alberry. He says, so in general, we don't believe in unfettered sexual freedom as much as we sometimes claim to. The issue is not whether there should be restrictions on what someone can do sexually, but what those restrictions are. All of us believe in the need for them. The issue is what they should be. All of us agree that there is such a thing as sexually immoral behavior. Not every sexual desire is equally healthy, noble, or right. Some forms of sexual behavior are harmful. Everyone needs to have some level of self-control over their sexual desires. We agree on that as a society. But where does it come from? And this is our last point. The point is, who has authority? This is, this is the whole matter of this issue. Who has authority to tell you how to live your life? Who has authority to tell all of creation, all people, all, all you know, nations, all tongues, all backgrounds, all genders, how to conduct themselves? And the answer is, the authority lies with the word of God. But this is a debated point. I believe Norman Geisler gets it completely right when he wrote in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics. And here's a quote for you. Take a picture of it. This means the correct interpretation is the one which discovers the meaning of the text. And it's grammatical. What do the words mean? And it's historical. What's happening historical? What's going on in the culture in which the text is expressed? This is what I seek to do 
every time I stand in front of you or any group of people is to bring us to the understanding of what the Bible says, understanding what the words mean, understanding the history around it, understanding the culture, because it, can, it will have an impact on how we interpret it. And so this is the right way to, to come to it and to discover what the Word of God says because He is the one whose authority we must be concerned about. But that is not the way everybody wants to come and discover the meaning of the text. How can there be so much confusion over this within the church? How can there be so much debate? Because it comes down to a matter of authority. Who has the authority to tell you to forgive? to not blaspheme, to not covet. Who has the authority that tells you not to steal and not to murder? Well, it's God. Who has the authority to tell you to keep sex inside of marriage between a man and a woman? It's God. But if you don't believe he has the authority to do that, if you don't want to discover the meaning of the text, then you can end up anywhere. And there are plenty of people that have stepped up with an alternative way of reading the word of God while claiming to use the word of God to indulge themselves in sin. One of these examples, and I'll give her the respect of the title she gave herself, the Reverend Mona West, in writing The Power of the Bible, writes this. Not only can there be meaning in the author's original intent, but meaning can be derived by the reader. Meaning actually happens in the interaction between reader and text. This concept has greatly impacted biblical interpretation. Brace yourself, because now who is reading the text is just as important as who wrote the text. That's how you enter confusion into this discussion. If you're okay with that, then... Confusion will abound. But if your desire is to find out what the author meant, listen, we don't do that in any other form of life. If I could get hold of one of your letters that you wrote to somebody, and I could go back and redefine the words and the meaning, you would be outraged. If I apprehended a love letter between you and your boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouse, and I said, well, let me, I read it, but let me just tell you what it means. So it says here, um, honey, I love you with all my heart. You rascal. I am done with you. I never want to see you again. That's not what it says. No, but that's, you see, that's what it means to me. I'm the reader. And as a reader, what it means to me is that she hates your guts and she's got somebody new. It says that she's forever committed to you, but I just don't think that's what it means. You see, culture and time, you know, all kinds of distress. And so what this means is she's done with you. Find somebody new. Would you be mad at me? Do I have authority to do something like that with the word of God, with, with your letter? No, I don't. Who gives you or anybody else the right to take what God has clearly stated in Scripture, turn it on its head and says, this is what it means to me. Love you. No disrespect. I don't care what it means to you. I care what it means to God and communicating that to you faithfully and bringing you along to that place where you will fall under the authority of God's word. This is, this is the issue. This is the bottom line of it all. Who has authority and what has he said? Because once you come to that place, 
then it will determine how you move forward. I know this is difficult, and we'll, we'll pick up on this again next week. But I, and this is probably the, the number one question so many of you have is, well, what do I say to this person who is in adultery or homosexuality or lesbianism or they're living with their boyfriend or girlfriend? What do I say to them? What do I say to the person who's transitioning or thinking about transitioning? Can I, should I just be quiet? Should I, should I affirm them to maintain the relationship? Well, let me read the word of God to you. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, does everybody feel clear so far? We've all been nailed. Untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. These are those who reject God and living this way. Who knowing, verse 32, the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. We don't engage in those acts, and we cannot approve of those acts. I cannot celebrate your homosexual lifestyle. I cannot feel proud about your choice to live as a lesbian. I cannot celebrate your desire to steal from your company. I cannot rejoice in the fact that you are a liar. I do not celebrate that you gossip and you backbite and you covet other people's stuff. I can't. I'm forbidden from approving of those things for two reasons. Number one, Jesus died on the cross for sin. How can I celebrate the thing that put my Savior on the cross? I can't do that, nor can any follower of Jesus Christ. He died for sin. And if you're going to go through and you're just going to say, that's not a sin and this isn't a sin, then you are the authority. And it's not the word of God. And if that's the case, then Jesus died for no reason. And God poured out his wrath on his son for no reason. And if that's the case, and it's not, but if that is the case, be done with Christianity. It's a twisted, evil philosophy. But that's not the case. It is God's means to make you clean and pure and to bring you into relationship. The second reason why we can't approve and affirm and celebrate and be proud about people's decision is because they're coming under judgment. How can you celebrate somebody who's about to endure the wrath of God? Love demands to speak the truth. Not with veins popping out of your face, not with, you know, uh, foul language, not with a loud voice, but to lovingly present the word of God and enter into a conversation with them about it. We have to do that. Now, one of the brothers in the church was saying, hey, have you heard about this idea that, you know, out in California, a lot of churches are now defining themselves as an affirming church or a non-affirming church. And so if you, you know, the question is brought to you, are you affirming church? We're affirming of the word of God. We are affirming that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We affirm the fact that everybody can be forgiven of their sins. We affirm that anybody is welcome to walk through this door and to hear about Jesus Christ and learn of him and come to repentance and we will throw the doors wide open and we will receive you. We will not affirm anybody who's in sin 
because that is the most unloving, unkind thing you could ever do. Those that are broken, like all of us, and repent of their sin, will be loved upon. It will not be treated like a second-class citizen, but will be treated like a firstborn son or daughter of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and for your grace. Thank you for the clarity and the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you will help us to not be confused on these matters, but to just hear and allow you to speak. You're the author. What do you mean? And it's very clear what you mean. So help us, Lord, to walk through this, to have marriages, to conduct ourselves sexually, and in every other regard in a way that yields itself to your authority. We say this morning, Lord, you are the boss. You are master, you are king, you are Lord, and we put ourselves underneath your word. And we love your word, Lord. Thank you for the protection. Thank you for the guidance. Thank you for the bumper rails of your word that keep us out of the ditches. I pray you would convince every one of us here this morning of the need to yield to you without debate or question. You are God. We are not. You are in heaven. And so, Lord, may our words be few. If you need to get things right with the Lord, do it now. Repent of the sin. Yield to the authority of God's word. That is the bottom line. Don't be deceived by the enemy who wants to destroy everything that God has made. This is what is going on in our culture, in the world, and even within the church. Amen.